Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. We're all familiar to a great degree with Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, and the promise of Messiah's coming into our world to suffer and die and to provide redemption. Oftentimes, Isaiah 54, 55 gets lost in the shuffle, though they're read in, this, in the synagogue every, every uh, time that this portion is to be read throughout the reading of Scripture in, during the year. This is a marvelous passage about God's sovereign grace among his people and his protect, protective and loving care for those he's chosen. If you look at verses, for example, verses 1 to 9 or, or so, Isaiah's focusing on God renewing his marital vows to Israel. That's what the imagery is. The Lord renewing his marriage covenant his marriage ketuvah, you might say, with uh, Israel. And so he says to Israel, Sing, barren one who has not given birth. Burst into singing and shout, you who have not travailed. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married one, says Adonai. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out your tabernacle curtains. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. I think this is so cool. You know, he's talking about Israel had gone after false gods. In fact, the Torah portion that's read for today is from Deuteronomy 25. It's uh, Pinchas, which has to do with how Aaron's son, Phinehas, or Pinchas in Hebrew, had taken, uh, had reacted to the idolatrous ways that Israel had gotten herself into, and he slays all of uh, these apostates who would not follow the ways of God. And so he is so honored for his uh, diligence in ridding Israel of idolatrous ways. The corresponding passage, interestingly enough, is 1 Kings 18, which is where Elijah is told by God to do battle with the Baal prophets of his day. And in his day, all Israel was going after these false gods. In fact, we learn that there were only 6,000 or 7,000 that had not bowed their knee to Baal. Now think about that. How many Jewish people were in the land at that time? Two million, three million, four million? We don't know for sure. We know two million came out of the Exodus many years before. So how did Israel's population multiply? For the sake of argument, let's just say five million people, four million people. 6,000 
constituted the faithful remnant in the time of Elijah. They were so scarce. Elijah said, I'm the only one who's left. And God says, no, 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 you've miscounted by 6,999. But even that is not all that much in light of the entire nation. And so you have these two passages sort of juxtaposed to one another. Phineas or Pinchas who ridded idolatry from Israel during the time of the Exodus, and Elijah, who rid the land of Israel from the Baal prophets at the time of the kings. So idolatry is a real problem in Israel. It's one of the reasons why there's such resistance among our people to embracing Yeshua as Messiah. Because for many of our people, it seems to be Mistakenly, of course, but it seems to be idolatrous because the question that oftentimes the Jewish person asks is, how can you worship a man as God? The problem is that God is utterly complex. He's utterly unravelable. He's utterly undefinable. I mean, we can define some things about God. We can say he's holy, just, and good. But those words are hard to define in and of themselves. Did you ever try to define what it means to be holy? What does that mean in its utter essence of holiness? And God is not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. So once we've figured out what holy is, we need to figure out what is holy, holy, holy mean. And it sort of defies our understanding, though we have some kind of grasp of it, but it eludes us, you know, sort of like clay when you grab it or mud, you know, you got it and then you open your hand and most of it is lost through the cracks of our fingers. God is like that to us. Fortunately, he's revealed so much to us through his behavior, through his actions in the scripture that we can cling to more of who he is than we would otherwise be able to cling to. But God is a holy God. And the first of the commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. And so these two passages are meant to focus our attention on the seriousness of our relationship with God. We're not just God's children, though we are, but God is a serious being, not an unjoyful being, not an unhappy being. God is most happy, and he's most happy when an individual comes to know him. There's joy in heaven like nowhere else. That joy is not just among the angels, but it's also within the very character, heart, and soul of God himself. We can actually make God happy. (laughs) Even as he blesses us, we bless God. What does that mean? We honor him. We make him happy and joyful. We do that through our lives that are in conformity with his will. We do that with his word as we bring it to bear on the hearts and consciences of people everywhere that might lead them to embrace him as Messiah. It makes him unbelievably happy and joyful. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what we experience when we come to know him as he would want us to know him. But we only know him very little. All of eternity it will take to know him a little bit more. But one thing we're told is that when anything else comes between us and God, it is idolatrous in nature. 
We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put another way, we are to love God fullest and most fully and most completely. And anything that comes in that way is a barrier to that. Money can become like that to us. Although all of us try to save as much as we can, it can become an idol in our hearts. Letters after our name can become idols into our hearts. How many PhDs, THDs, MDs, or whatever else we have, they can become idols that come between us and God. Individuals other than God can become idols that come between us and God. And thus we need to be most cautious about this. When we look at a passage like Isaiah 54, God is reconfirming his relationship to Israel. Israel is God's wife, the scripture reveals to us. And God is Israel's husband. In this first part, Israel has gone astray, has gone after other gods, has embraced someone or someone's else as their own husband. And now God in Isaiah 54 is saying the day will come when Israel will be fully restored as my wife. And when that happens, there will be the multiplication of Israel's people and nation like none other before. He says, enlarge your tents, stretch out your cords, make room for what I am about to do in bringing my people back into the land and multiplying them like never before. We're seeing something, I believe, of that in our own day. For in the first time in history since 70 AD, there are more Jews in the land of Israel than anywhere else in the world. And talk about enlarging and spreading them out. All of those Jewish people who are back in the land are from like every nation you can imagine. There are those that have come from all kinds of African nations. North African nations. Ethiopia. South Africa. Morocco. Libya. Tunisia. Egypt. All of those countries. There are Jews there from Spain, from France, from Germany, from Poland, from Lithuania, from Slovakia. They're there from Kiev. They're there from Russia. They're there from Poland. They're there from Sweden. They're there from Norway. They're there from England, France. They're there from Brazil. They're there from Argentina. Think about this. They're there from the United States. They're there from Canada. They're there from Japan, from Australia. There is hardly a nation that is not represented by a Jew in the land of Israel. And God has said here in Isaiah 54, enlarge your tents. Stretch out your cords because you're going to need all of this space to fill up all the people I will bring back into their land. In Isaiah 53, we oftentimes miss this, but at the end it says that because of Messiah's faithfulness and giving his life a ransom for many, he will prolong his days and he will expand his seed, it says in Isaiah 53. It's in Isaiah 54 that we see what the expansion of his seed means. And it is the return of Jews from the four corners of the earth. As Isaiah says, or as Ezekiel says, from the north, south, east, and west to wherever I have scattered them. Israel is a land 
of predominantly Jews, but they are Jews from every other land on the face of the earth. And so Isaiah is telling Israel as God's spokesperson, don't hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, nor cringe, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. You will remember the the reproach of your widowhood no more. No longer in this imagery is Israel scattered and out of relationship with God. Look what he says. For your master is your husband. There's the reestablishing of the relationship of God to Israel. The marriage is restored. And he says, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts of his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He will be called God of all the earth. And thus all nations will flow into Jerusalem and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel will be redeemed and restored spiritually as well as physically. We're seeing the physical ramifications. We're seeing the physical restoration of Israel. We're even seeing growing spiritual restoration as more and more Jewish people are coming to a Messiah in the land and many more congregations are springing up. We heard from Akiva Cohen and the work that he's doing among young people and the new congregations that will spring up as a result of that work in time to come. But he says in verse 6, For the Lord has called you back like a wife. There's that marriage thing again. Like a wife deserted and grieved. Like a wife of one's youth that is rejected. And for a brief moment you were deserted. But I will regard you with great compassion. And in a surge of anger I hid my face from you. But with everlasting kindness. What, exe- what an incredible distinction. In a surge In a flare-up of anger, I may have scattered you, but with my everlasting love and compassion, I will regather you and you will never be scattered from me again, he is saying. Because I will have compassion on you. I am, for the second time, Israel's redeemer. He says, this is like the waters of Noah to me. Remember what happened with the waters of Noah? Judgment fell upon the earth. But when it was done, he said, I will no longer so judge the earth again. It was a moment of God's anger, but it didn't last forever. The flood receded, the waters sank, and from that time to the present and never again will God do such a thing. Israel In a moment of God's anger because of their unrighteousness, God separated them from him, it might be said. And they deserted their husband. But but it is only for a moment, and there will come a time when with everlasting arms for the rest of their days, God will restore his people once again. And that's what he says, for I swore that the waters of Noah would no more cover the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you forever either. And though the mountains depart and the hills be shaken, my love will not depart 
from you, nor will my covenant of peace be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And I love this line, oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and unconsoled, behold, I set your stones, I lay this foundation with sapphires, with rubies, with crystal, all your children will be taught of the Lord, your children will have great shalom, great peace. Wow, I mean, isn't this a beautiful, I mean, Isaiah is amazing, right? I mean, what a beautiful expression of this. And so he says, though you are afflicted and you're storm-tossed and you're lacking being consoled, the day will come when you will experience all of that. And then as we sang this morning, God then will protect his people. In righteousness, you'll be established. You'll be far from oppression. For you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. Behold, anyone fiercely attacking is not from me. Now, you know, that line really struck me. Because I don't know if you've ever read some of the anti-Semitic literature. But you know how often it is that the anti-Semites of the world say that they're doing the work of God? I mean, you know, I was just reading, you know, pardon me, but I was reading Hitler's uh, speech at the Reichstag in 1936. You know, you can get all this stuff online. And I always heard him rant and rave in German, but I had no idea what he was saying. He could have been ordering something from him. No, I want it with, you know. But in his message in 1936, he said, I am doing the work of God. The Almighty has called me to this task. He bathed so much of his hatred and venomous speech by attempting to support what he was about to unleash by saying God had led me to do this. And they all say these things in the name of God. I don't like picking on Martin Luther too much because it certainly was at the end of his days that he said the horrific things that he said about Israel and the Jewish people. But he said them in the name of God, like Hitler had done. And they all do that, right? But here in this passage, it says, anyone fiercely attacking is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you is not from me. Whoever launches attacks and rockets and forces against you is not from me. And, he says, they will fail because of you and before you. He says, Behold, I created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its work, and I created the destroyer to ruin. It's really interesting, the imagery that Isaiah uses. He's saying, you know, all these guys that are working with iron and bronze, and they're making swords and spears and all kinds of things in order to, uh, to destroy you. He says, I've enabled people to become skillful with such things, 
right? The reason why there are smiths that can work with iron or bronze or in our day and age steel is because God has gifted them with the ability to mold those things and to fashion those things. They're sculptors with metal and steel. But what he says is, yes, I have enabled individuals to do that. But he says, no matter what kind of weapon human beings are able to devise, no matter what kind of weaponry human beings can think up, be they rocket launched, be they satellite launched, be they submarine missiles, nuclear missiles, no, no matter what kind of weaponry anyone can design. He says, there will never be a weapon that can be designed to destroy you. It's almost like Jeremiah, right? When Jeremiah says, the only thing that will enable me to cease my covenant with you, my promises to you, the only thing that will break my promises is if the universe can be destroyed. He says, Jeremiah 31, if you can destroy the sun, moon, stars, the planets, the forces that enable them to rotate and swirl around and do their thing. He says, unless you can destroy all of that, there is no hope of ever expecting me to go back on my promises to Israel. And here Isaiah says, no matter what kind of weapons the enemies of Israel, who are ultimately the enemies of God, might form, There will never be one devised, designed, brought into reality that will destroy God's people. Because it is God who is their protector. It is God who is their shield. It is God who is their refuge and strength. It is their Messiah who watches over them. It is his Sava'od, his hosts, his angels, who are watchmen on the walls, who are not allowing God to rest day or night, who continue to beseech him to do your will among your people as you have proposed to do. And this God is always, always, always protecting his people and bringing them through one challenge to the next. No weapon formed against you will prosper, and you will condemn every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the Lord's servants. Their vindication is from me. It is a declaration of the Lord. It is God who will go to fight for his people in the day of battle, as Zechariah states. That doesn't mean we don't do things. We do things. (laughs) But it is God who ultimately does the thing that is done. And thus, you were a hand of God in Israel as you were preparing all of the syringes and all of the supplies that God will use through his medics on the battlefield to strengthen the wounded. And you can multiply that out throughout Israel's army and Israel's intentions. In Isaiah 41, and I'll close with this passage. In Isaiah 41, it says, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, I read it earlier, my friend, 
I took hold of you from the ends of the earth. There they come, all Israel from all over. I called you from its uttermost parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you, not rejected you. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you. It's a declaration of the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Father in heaven, we bring before you your word, even as we reflected on and as we read. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do your will. We pray, Father, that you would accomplish your purpose. We pray, Father, that you will bring destruction upon Israel's enemies. And we pray, Father, that you will deliver Israel once again. And we pray that in that deliverance, that there would be those who would not merely see the hands of their generals, the hands of their military intelligence, the hands of their armaments, the hands of their radar facilities and computer technology, We pray, Father, that in the deliverance they will experience, that they will see your hand and that they will be drawn to their God and that they might find their Messiah and Savior during this time of trouble. We pray, Father, for your protective grace on your people. We pray for families and loved ones who no doubt will lose some of their youngest, bravest, and most cherished. And we pray, Lord, you would comfort the comfortless, console those that will need consoling. Father, those soldiers that will be unleashed in Gaza, those that will be marching on the streets and alleyways, may you rise to their minds all that they've been trained for. May you strengthen their convictions May you strengthen their hearts. May you strengthen their nerves. And may you help them, Father, do their duty unto one another. And we pray somewhere in that mix, they will find you. And that they would be led to you. Be with the many believers who will be among the frontline soldiers. Watch over them. Help them to be a marvelous testimony of courage. Help them, Lord, to be a marvelous testimony of your grace and of your love. Help them be a marvelous testimony of the redemption they've experienced in you. May it become contagious and and may many find you to be their Lord, Savior, and Messiah as well. Into your hands, Father, we commend your people. And we pray for your watchful eyes and your hands and your grace. For it's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. 
Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.